You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're talking about content strategy, the role it plays in building or rebuilding your brand, and how to ensure you're prepared to get the greatest ROI from your efforts. To help us, we have with us Margot Bloomstein, author of Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat the Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap, and also a recognized brand and strategy consultant. Margot, thank you so much for taking time, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. So we always like to start with kind of an off-the-wall question, just so the audience gets to know you a little bit better. And I'm always curious to learn something that you're passionate about that people that might know you only through work might be surprised to learn about you. So I am a passionate museum visitor, I guess. I think that's fair to say. Um, and of <laughs> course, during the pandemic, it's been a little tougher to to go out and explore, to, to look for those outside external sources of inspiration that I think many of us like to like to look to, like to bring into our, our day or our week. So that's been a little bit more challenging. So I've been I've been hunting down more exhibits online um, that have been curated thoughtfully for um, for just experiencing behind your your laptop or off of your phone. And and that's been pretty exciting, too. I think that that sort of thinking, like how people design experiences, like the order that goes into the things that they want us to experience, the hierarchy of information. Of course, that that all directly translates into what we do in our worlds as well. So it's good stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. How are you finding the virtual exhibits? Some have been really good. And I think because it's an opportunity for exhibit designers and for, cur- for curators to, to kind of pull things out of their collections that maybe they can't normally put on display, but they can on on a website um, on a web page, so that's been pretty exciting. I think it also allows for some more long form storytelling, uh, maybe to to share more background information around particular objects or particular artworks. So that's been really kind of cool. I like that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I haven't done many of them. I'm excited because we finally got to a point where I think it's going to be safe to go see the immersive Van Gogh exhibit. <sighs> Uh, I've had my eye on that for a while, but obviously with COVID, you know, (laughs) not so much, but it looks like we're actually getting to a point where that may be able to happen. So I'm excited about that. Oh, that's great. Nice. Yeah. I haven't seen that one yet. That'll be really cool. All right. So let's jump into kind of the topic of the day and, and talk about, you know, content strategy and and how it helps brands evolve or rebuild their brands. And I kind of want to start with something that was in the advanced materials that you'd sent over. Mm -hmm. And that's really understanding or helping the audience understand why smart businesses should feel responsible for and take ownership of customer confidence. I mean, I think when we talk about customer confidence, um, consumer confidence indices and whatnot in our economy, that can be kind of like a big, big lofty thing that uh, kind of affects uh, our larger economy. But of course, our economy comprises consumers, individual consumers, and individual businesses, many small businesses as well as large businesses. And I think that when those business owners, when the marketers that that shape and influence the consumer's experience, when folks that are in, in design and in content and in merchandising and, and in sales, when we take ownership over the 
the confidence that a consumer or in in B2B context that they're bringing into into the sales and purchasing experience, we can control so much more and, and really affect so much more of of our success and the and the well-being of our businesses. So when I talk about customer confidence, I'm looking at how confident they feel in us, maybe maybe in the businesses where, where they're thinking about buying a product or where they're thinking about doing business, <laughs> but also their confidence in themselves, in their own ability to make good decisions and in their sense, their sense of confidence that they feel like they have enough information to make good decisions. And that idea, giving somebody both enough information as well as the feeling that they have enough information, I think that that's something that we can directly control through marketing, through through how we make choices about the density of information on the page and, and how we're allowing people to kind of dig through an experience and sort of control their own ability to self-educate. We can influence all of that. So when we do address those things through our choices in content and design and marketing, that directly adds up to building the confidence in our target audience. Well, and it's a really good point, right? So we've have people that have there's so much information out there that they oftentimes will feel, you know, overwhelmed. Like, how do I make sense of all of this? And I think there's a really important component to understanding the the medium that which we're communicating with them through or providing the information through. But I'm curious from your perspective, that requires us to have a really deep understanding of content purpose and the design and how it's delivered. I'm curious how those two play in your perspective in terms of fostering that trust that we're looking for. So one of the um, one of the examples that I include in Trustworthy, one of the, the brands where I had the opportunity to interview folks and spend a lot of time is America's Test Kitchen. And of course, they're an amazing publishing platform. They produce um, cooking school shows. They, they rework recipes in the Cook's Country magazine. They produce Cook's Illustrated. They've got an Instagram feed, a Twitter feed. They produce a lot of content. And in the in the modern economy where we say that all businesses are publishers if they're doing things right uh, they're uh, they're kind of a a really good model to follow not for the idea that you need to be publishing content everywhere and producing a lot of it cuz that also gets at that other question of well how do you know when you're producing enough content i don't think they're they're the best role model for all organizations in that regard but rather i look to them because one of the the big kind of mantras there um, something that i heard when i was interviewing jack bishop their their chief content officer is that success breeds confidence and all of their content creation and the way they design their content how they handle storytelling and whatnot all goes back to that idea that they want to make sure that the person consuming that content is successful with it. So whether it's somebody that is like, ah, I have to make dinner tonight and I have no idea what I'm going to make. <laughs> so they're swiping through Instagram because that's what they've been doing all afternoon. And now they're like, yikes, dinner. So they're meeting that consumer where they are and saying, all right, while you're on our Instagram feed, let's show you a recipe in which every step is reduced to a single image with the instructions for that, that image as the caption for it. 
or if they're meeting somebody that really spends a lot of time maybe in the kitchen, this is not a novice, they want to learn more about the history of particular cooking techniques and ingredients, they're meeting that person where they are too and enabling them to be successful. And this idea that success breeds confidence we can hold that up, I think, in any in any business to say, what do we do to empower our audiences? What do we do to to make them feel like they can make good decisions and that whether they're they're making dinner tonight or they're making like a big ticket purchasing decision for for their organization, that they're going to be successful so that that idea of success translates to confidence, which translates to trust. Well, and that, okay. So that sense of trust, how, how are you working with companies or how are you suggesting that they measure, measure that or or determine that they are actually achieving that sense of trust and hope with their customers? Is it engagement scores? Is it, does it go to top line revenue? How are you helping companies understand the attribution, let's say of the well-designed content that's engaged with What's that look like? I think when we measure trust, we have to get really, really tactical because it's it's too easy to sort of fall into the, the trap of so many other buzzwords like trust and transparency and authenticity where everybody wants them, but nobody knows how to measure them. So I think when we measure something like trust, we have to be really tactical. And if you're in a if you're in an organization that that sells goods, look at your rate of product returns because when when that rate of returns is high, it means that people have been showrooming a lot, maybe buying a lot because they're uncertain what's going to be the right product for them or what's going to be the right size for them and figuring that out at home and then sending a bunch of stuff back. When they're sending a lot of stuff back, it's because there wasn't enough information to make them trust the experience just out of the gate. And I think we can look at things like the rate of product returns. You can listen in on customer support calls and see, are they asking about easily quantifiable information that that they should be able to just discern by reading or by looking through a photo gallery? Are they focusing there or are they able to to ask about kind of like the more nuanced issues that that do require a conversation. So I think you can look at rate of product returns. You can listen in on on customer support calls, look at the the nature of those types of questions, and then also look at customer sentiment analysis. Because I think that by approaching it from all of those different angles, yeah, we get a better understanding of just how happy someone is with with maybe a purchase or something like that. But we also get a sense of a very, a very measurable sense of if they trusted the decision to purchase something when they initially made it and if they still felt good about that decision when the product arrived. And so in order in order to do that, right, in order to accomplish that, the, each company has to come up with a voice, like their their representation of self. And then part of that is tone. Part of it is the medium. Part of it's the volume of content. I mean, the example you use, there are some companies that, that do as much, if not more than, or some that do less. And I'm curious, how would you advise a company to approach developing that voice and that volume of content so that they are not overwhelming and they're ba- they're striking that balance between I- informing versus, you know, 
not providing enough information and, and not doing it in a way that's authentic where it doesn't resonate. What are the, some of the key things for you that go into that development of voice for companies? So first and foremost, I think you have to develop a message architecture or a hierarchy of communication goals. That's where I start with all of my clients, regardless of their, of their size, the scope of the project, their business or industry, if they're B2C or B2B. I think first we have to understand their hierarchy of communication goals? Is it most important for them to convey that they're reliable and responsible? Or is it most important for them to convey that they're innovative or scrappy or creative or or relationship oriented? Once we understand those qualities and, and how they define them as well, because I mean, one organization's modern is, that could be a pejorative <laughs> term in another organization. <laughs> Um, I think once we understand those qualities and how they define them, then we can start executing on that through choices in voice that is both visual and verbal. So when I use the term voice, I'm talking about how visually and verbally an organization conveys what they stand for in, in a familiar and consistent way. So we can make those more tactical decisions after we understand their communication goals. Are they going to do that through really long, loquacious sentences and, and long form copy? Or are they going to use more short, terse sound bites and then a typeface that goes along with it in terms of being really streamlined and to the point? So we can make those visual and verbal decisions based on their communication goals after we establish a message architecture. From there, I think we can decide, well, how much do they need to say? And I think that question goes back to, well, how much does your audience need, again, visually and verbally, to make good decisions and then feel good about the decisions they make? So do they need photo galleries that contain dozens and dozens of images? Or will one single diagram be enough to convey what your product is about or to convey how your service works? And then similarly, we can say, do we need a lot of long form copies so that people can read through pages and pages of your research and get really comfortable that, that they understand the terminology? Or can we make this more about simple, plain language where they feel like they get just enough info and then they can make that decision, that purchasing decision? So I think looking at attributes of voice and volume, first, we have to establish that message architecture to begin with. Okay. And so we have that message architecture. Does it change? So I, I'm developing my voice and does the execution of it change based on the medium? And how do we, how do we balance that? You know, an interactive website versus, I don't know, YouTube videos or social media versus eBooks or physical books. How does the medium itself change the way you're going to help the company realize that voice or, or the delivery of that voice? So I'm a big proponent that it is one ring to rule them all. One voice from, <laughs> from one message architecture. But we do kind of dial the tone up and down depending on the medium. So for example, if I'm working with an organization, maybe in financial services that wants to appear very established, reliable, erudite, 
that needs to come through whether we're dealing with just 280 characters on Twitter. Like, I don't want to see them like using lol speak and, and a lot of abbreviations and whatnot there. <laughs> needs to come through on Twitter as well as in their white papers when maybe they've got all the space in the world. But I think we can make other choices that say not all channels and platforms are right for all brands. If an organization wants to convey its thought leadership, yeah, maybe it makes sense to invest in white papers, to to partner with um, with bringing your thought leaders together with, with ghostwriters to get more of their thinking out there. Maybe it doesn't make as much sense for, for them to have a YouTube channel. But if an organization wants to convey that they're very responsive and engaged and, and very service-oriented, then yes, they should be all over social media and engaging in the conversations, the very fast and timely conversations with their audience where they are having those conversations. So I think we can look at the choice of channels, dial up different aspects of the tone based on those channels, but always in a way that is consistent with the the goals in the message architecture. And I think a big reason for that is that We've all seen this before. I think anybody that that lived through mm, maybe e-commerce in the, in the early '90s <laughs> lived through this, or I guess early to late '90s as e-commerce was evolving and all. We all saw kind of in the early days there when organizations maybe had a catalog that they used with with some of their their sales targets, and then they had salespeople as well, and maybe a burgeoning website. We all saw what it looked like when they didn't share the same policies or the same ways right. of thinking about the product or the experience, how it could be such a, a weird and bifurcated experience for the audience. And today, the same thing holds true. Your audience may start by engaging with you maybe on Twitter or in a trade show and then go to your website to check that out and then maybe check back against some print collateral that they've received as well. And if the messaging is not the same among all those different channels, that undermines their trust. That undermines your your authenticity. And I think if we want to get past that, if we want to build trust with our audiences, we need to start by being consistent across channels and with our message architecture. Okay. And so let's think about it from a different perspective, because then there's also the need for the voice and the content and the messaging to combat disinformation and things that maybe, uh, I don't want to say aren't 100% accurate. Let's just say that, <laughs> but just different from disinformation in general. And so how do companies, how should companies as they're developing these voices and looking at these channels, how should they be paying attention to or how much attention should they be paying to kind of disinformation and combating that in their own content strategy? I think when we're talking about disinformation, maybe from from competitors or or maybe misconceptions that are sort of dogging your industry, the best way for your company to to get out ahead of that and and also be um I would say maybe a, a transformative force in your industry, more of a, an industry leader, is by really embracing the opportunity to be transparent, make more information public. So this gets back to that idea we were talking about voice and volume. I think this is an aspect of volume. The more your organization shares about about your roadmap, about your processes, maybe about sourcing, about your supply chain 
That's arming your audience then with more information so that they feel smarter, like they know what's going on. When they feel smarter, when they do have access to accurate, high quality information about your industry, about your company, that helps to inoculate them against disinformation. And um, and I think that that is the responsibility and purview of every smart business. I think um, we've been talking about voice and volume. I would say that the other the other sort of V that goes along with those, and these are kind of the three pillars that I write about in Trustworthy. In addition to voice and volume, there's also vulnerability. So embracing the opportunity to, to kind of share how your business works, to, to bring more of your audience into the process of how you are evolving, maybe how you're, how you're learning and continuing to change in your organization, whether that's around social issues, how to do business better, maybe about how to improve your supply chain. The more that you can prototype in public and effectively bring your audience into those processes, I think the more it, it helps to beat back cynicism and helps to to really push those those questions and um, and cynicism about disinformation. It helps to push that all into the background so that you can have better conversations with your audience about what is true about your business and industry. I love it. And so you mentioned the book again. Let's talk about the book for a second. What was the what was the inspiration? I mean, writing a book's no small thing. <laughs> it takes a lot, a lot of time. Uh, from I've talked to a lot of authors, and it's always uh, yeah, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> but but I'm curious to know kind of what was the inspiration and, and the journey to get that done. Well, th- this is my second book, so I'd like to think I knew what I was getting myself into. But <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's probably like with uh, it's like with kids. Everyone is different, and every book is too. <laughs> Um, I mean, in 2012, I, uh, I published uh, content strategy at work, and that was looking at how businesses embrace content strategy in, in what was then sort of a, a nascent um, industry, a nascent part of how we make the web. And um, that was writing really to an audience of marketers and writers and content strategists and designers. With Trustworthy, I think I was writing to that audience. It's kind of a a love letter to that audience to say, the world may be on fire, but our work still has a tremendous amount of value, maybe even more value now because the work that we can do in, in helping to build trust is vital and necessary. And it's important for our businesses. It's important for our target audiences. And I think for many of us, it's important when we get up at the beginning of the day and and go to see what we need to do that day too. I think it's important to maintain that focus. And um, and the inspiration, I guess, was looking back five six years, going back now to presidential election cycles, to say the way we get information, the way we come to trust information and trust what we think we know about that information has changed, and. Um, People don't push back on disinformation the way they they once used to. I mean, it used to be if you caught a politician in a lie that it would it would scuttle their campaign. And uh, and that wasn't happening five, six years ago. And if anything, people were doubling down around their beliefs. They they were doubling down around 
how they thought of themselves, if they thought of themselves as a Democrat or Republican, um, a Trump supporter, a Clinton supporter, went to the point where new information did not sway their self-perception and their beliefs about themselves, even if it did change their beliefs about the candidate. And I wondered, even though my my audience and the organizations with which I work, they're not really in the realm of politics and, and media. But I wondered if those problems would affect them as well, if those issues would one day affect marketers, uh, marketing departments in retail and healthcare and financial services and, and software and all the other industry sectors. Turns out they it. do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe more than we'd like to admit, but, um, yeah, probably, <laughs> but you know what? I think that it is a, it's a big problem because issues of trust undermine marketing today. We, we can't have like the same big influential conversations that we once could with our audiences. We need to change the nature of those conversations because marketing falls flat and sales cycles are taking longer. And it's not just because of the pandemic. And I think that we can look at that and say, well, yeah, cynicism is undermining so many of our industries. But cynics look at the world as it is and say, it's worse. I think that designers and marketers and copywriters, we are builders of brands and brainstorms. And we look at the world as it is and say, it can be better. Let's make it so that it will be better. And I think that we already have the tools to do that. I love it. It's a great perspective and a, and a nice way to segment the the cynicism from the designers. I love that. <laughs> um, so let's change direction here a little bit. We ask all of our guests two standard questions towards the end of each interview. The first is simply, as a well sought after strategy consultant, you obviously are getting prospected to uh, on a regular basis. Somebody's always probably trying to sell you something. And I'm curious to know when somebody doesn't have a trusted referral into you, what works for you when somebody's trying to capture your attention and earn the right to time on your calendar? I think when when they can demonstrate in their outreach that um, that they've done their homework, that they're interested in me, not just as another number, as a as a hot target, but because they're interested in helping me build a stronger business. And why? Because maybe our passions align in some way. And then when they demonstrate that that they've done their homework. They, they spell my name correctly at the opening of the email <laughs> and, uh, or they're able to like reference kind of our, our shared interests in the industry that, that definitely catches my attention. Love it. Show you, show them they know you. And, and that's one we hear quite, quite often. So when we think about the last question, we call it our acceleration and insight. And if there was one thing, one piece of advice you could give marketing or professional services, people or salespeople, one piece of advice that if they listen to you believe would help them hit or exceed their targets, what would it be and why? I would say, get to know your audience and don't sell your thing, solve their problems. Because I think that when we when we develop that compassion for for someone else's problems, it helps us fit into their world in a way that is is relevant. And um, there's there's no better. I think there's no better compliment in our business relationships than relevance. I love it. I love it. Margo, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Where do you, would you like us to send listeners if they're interested in, in reaching out to you? Best place to get the book, help give the audience kind of a, a next step. How do they reach out and, and connect? 
You can find Trustworthy everywhere books are sold. Definitely a good idea to to (laughs) order through your favorite small bookstore, or you can find it on Amazon as well. And if you've if you've read it, please go write a review on Amazon because your words are are gold in helping to articulate and convey my words. And you can find me on Twitter at at mbloomstein or online at appropriateinc.com. I love it. Thank you so much again for taking the time. It's been amazing having you on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. You know the drill. Check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share it with friends, family, coworkers. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. And until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.